11 minutes it is before 8 p.m. on uh, South Africa's coolest radio station, uh, according to that uh, next-gen uh, study there, and uh, we certainly own that uh, here at the Mighty Metro. We go into our business wrap now. Snesipo Maninja joins me on the line. She's an uh, independent market commentator, analyst, and CA. Snesipo, good evening to you and welcome. I'm good, good. I'm good, good. Aya, how are you? Ish, because I'm here, man. Because I'm here. I was saying earlier, uh, full chicken gatito, but Siakubo, Siakubo, Siakubo notwithstanding, Siakubo notwithstanding. That being said, one, I guess, one entity that might be feeling boom, yani, we full chicken, might be South African Airways. Now, I was talking earlier on about the airports company saying they're only going to return to uh, same passenger levels they got in 2019, only in 2023. And uh, in all of this, SAA is saying they want to fly by January 2021 under a new model. And it seems now that uh, they're no longer as wedded to a 50% plus one as they were before. Oh, yeah, so, you know, SAA, shame big SAA, so I think we need to, um, I, need, I, think, I think we need to break down the issues for SAA. Fundamentally, the global travel industry is in distress. And number one. Number two is that it is in distress globally. It's not just Africa. SAA mm. was bankrupt, relying on government guarantees for the past seven out of ten years. That's number two. Number three is that I think I think the article you're referring to is that they, they don't believe they should be majority controlled and they want to do a telecom model. Fundamentally, telecom was profitable. <laughs> profitable in the reason why government wasn't the majority shareholder. Telecom always been mm. profitable. Has always it's been profitable. Interesting because we're I mean, we're comparing talking remember, Yeah, when I said, I remember uh, at the time when you know the I think Malaysia Telecoms was, was looking to buy stake into into telecom, and it wasn't even a debate. I mean, they weren't even you know uh, hiding who the potential suitors were. They made it very clear because of how profitable and the dominant market position that Telcom had. And now it seems, you know, we're trying to be convinced that there's so many prospective suitors that are waiting in the wings to try and save SAA, and they'll tell us it all in good time, and uh, by January everything is going to be hunky-dory. Well, I don't know who's going to buy SAA. You can't even give it away at this point. You can give it away, but the fundamental issue is SAA is an unprofitable entity. We've seen the financials. They're operationally not profitable. Who will buy a business that is operationally not profitable, meaning it's going to cost you money? For money, you would spend just, 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 let's go back into principle. Why would you buy a business that's not profitable? That you would need to put in more money. So fundamentally, I think when we make the SA comparison, I think we just need to be very realistic and just also just call call spade a spade. Uh, I don't know what uh, Minister Gordon is saying. Telcom has always been profitable. It's, mm. it's, you're, not even, you're not even like, Telcom was never loss making. It's been declaring dividends to government because they have a monopoly and they had a monopoly. Exactly. And they've exactly. always just made money. SAA has an almost monopoly. Because if we, if we, if we, if we, if we just, if we control, SAA is a dominant local player. And it is unprofitable. And furthermore, 
With Calm Air in Business Rescue, and I think this is what just needs, people just need to say, Calm Air is in Business Rescue. One of its biggest shareholders is Bidvest. The banks are not supporting the business rescue. Mm. And Calm Air was profitable. To show you the yeah, level of distress yeah. the airline industry is. So when you just look at those factors, you must ask yourself, Mara, who? Who are these unknowns? What I do suspect is happening is that people are making unlisted offers saying, no, we'll look at it. But no one is going to buy an entity that is structurally unprofitable. You can't compare. Telcom has been making money. There's never been a year where Telcom is not making. Like, I think we need to just, we just need to call a spade a spade. Is that Telcom was a profitable entity that had a protected uh, monopoly in the government. Even now, even now, even though the industry has changed, even as a mobile mm. player, Telcom is still in a better position than Salty. Like, you, you, you could still find a viable Telcom today. You would still find today. Yeah, and I and I I mean I think you make a very important point that uh, uh, if we're gonna try and compare like for like, then let's do the kind of industry level analysis and uh, really make sense of whether or not there's uh, any scope for profitability of aviation businesses first, let alone SAA. But uh, we'll certainly watch that one closely because Nam, I'd be very interested to uh, see who some of the uh, people waiting in the shadows to save SAA are. That being said, uh, famous brands selling their controlling stake in Tashers, and I guess many people have been expecting this uh, in line with uh, their strategy refresh or trying to, I guess, streamline their operations and some of the brands in their stable. What's the background to this particular deal, Snesipa? Just give us some background. We know that they bought Tashers a few years ago for about 10 million or so. Yeah, so, um, Jonga, uh, if this was sale was concluded last year, it would be talking two different things. But unfortunately, this this is concluded this year, this year. So the 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 family, the original owners of Tashas are buying it back. But the question is, at what price? They've said they're not disclosed the price, which will give you, which will answer everything you need to know. The fact that they're not disclosing the price will give you an answer of everything you need to 10, know. It's less than ten million. Uh, look at where Tasha's is right now. Just think, how much would you pay for it? Remember, they paid that ten bar a couple of years ago, so I wouldn't say it'd be less than ten million. And they had two stores then, but now they've got more stores and the international operations. But as you know, the entertainment, the, the entertainment and food sit down market. COVID has shook everything, guys. I and it's not just local; it shook everywhere. And the model that they have overseas is they don't have a franchise model. A franchise model here in SA, like, I don't think we, we, we can understand how much COVID has shaken the industry. So although you may be seeing um, uh, restaurants are full, they were full this weekend because I was past few of them. They were full this weekend. They still are surviving from effectively five months of little to zero trading. So you still have to those losses. So it's, it's a different price category altogether. But Famous Brands has looked, their strategy, number one, has been to uh, relook and only focus on convenient foods. And, you know, they still have got those cool foods from the UK. Mm, you know those mm. cool foods from the UK. You remember those cool foods from the UK. So, mm. so, so I, think, I think for them, 
there was one, only one. Um, I'm assuming that um, the family, the family, the Sidious family had um, had what you call preemptive rights, as meaning they could have been mm, the only. Sure, them sure. assuming. Um, if you look at the con- transaction, it falls below a required transaction in terms of JSC listing rec- um, uh, conditions, and the sales effective first of August, so it's a really damn deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's pause here for a second, uh, uh, and I want us to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll take a look at what's happening with cash build, and maybe you'll explain to me. I mean, you'll explain to me what this iferous change around leases is, because it's not the first time we're seeing it here uh, being attributed uh, to, I guess, uh, for a profit plunge or even a decline in uh, earnings per share or headline earnings per share. So uh, we'll try and make sense of that. And we'll also take a look at what's happening with Glencore and uh, the role of artisanal mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We saw last week uh, Tesla uh, trying to secure supply of a critical input into the batteries for their electric vehicles. And uh, yeah, all happens to come from one particular country, and that is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. We take a brief break now. We continue with our business wrap on the other side of this. It's our wrap of the top business stories. And uh, if you just joined us, I'm in conversation with Snesipo Manindra. We took a look at uh, the story of SAA and government saying they want a similar model to Telcom. Now, uh, government owns about 40% of Telcom, PIC, uh, just over 10% or so. Um, uh, and uh, they're saying they're considering a similar model for SAA. We took a look at that and we also took a look at uh, famous brands selling a controlling stake back to the Sidorus family. Uh, which uh, is the family that founded Tashes. And uh, Snesipo, let's shift our attention now to the building sector, Cash Build. Uh, uh, now, we uh, caught up uh, last week with a similar story. They uh, bought uh, the uh, building company, I think it was a bit earlier than that, Buco, for just over a billion rand, and now warning of a profit plunge and attributing uh, the lower-than-expected headline earnings per share to an iferous treatment of their leases. Now, I don't speak accounting, but uh, I certainly know you do. So uh, just explain to us. Okay. So what is for 16? Everybody's been crying about is for 16, but it's a non-cash movement. What it is, is basically the capitalizations of your finance leases onto your balance sheet, meaning that the cost of funding as well as your depreciation are, are accounted for in your financial statements on top of your operating leases. Now, um, it's an accounting what entry that... What does that mean? That... Oh, God. I'm going Sorry. Please, <laughs> account... what does that mean? I don't understand. <laughs> so, a finance lease is um, not is a lease in which you um, assume uh, quite significant rights of ownership. So, it's not like an operating lease. It seems like... I see. So, you, you, you have a relationship between, an, between a finance lease and an operating lease is there some level of ownership? And traditionally, finance leases um, have an element of, um, it's, it's, it's basically a capital lease or a sales lease. That's basically how mm. I can explain it. And it's usually done um, by a finance company, it becomes illegal, and you be, you've got, um, you have operating control of the asset, and you also share some of the economic risk and returns. So it's very, very popular when it comes to um, property. So property, so okay. it's an effective property. So because remember, when you're renting, um, okay, me and you can rent. Um, uh, we can rent uh, an office 
but we're just renting two or three offices. If you're renting the entire office, you're providing security, you effectively are exercising ownership on that asset. And therefore, mm-hmm. it can be said that you need, you've got the benefit of ownership, so therefore you need to also have the um, economic benefit. You also have to share the economic risk because you're exercising actual sure, ownership. Sure. Okay. So what Expert right. 16 talks about is that because of that, they think that you must capitalize, um, you need to capitalize this as well as, so because it's a finance lease, finance lease tends to operate with um, a certain element of financing. So it's the, yes. the lease rate, there's a, there's a level of financing which is tied to um, a variable rate, usually prime or dry bar or CPI plus, depending on how the lease is structured. Um, the structuring, the expected return that, that the property owner wants to wants to attain. So therefore, that's what it means. So it impacts companies that have significant leases on there, and also gives you an able to for you to, from a measurement perspective, uh, look at what's the true value of the entity. So if you look, so it affects retailers quite significantly because they've got quite significant exposure uh, to property, and it affects retailers specifically the ones where they tend to be the anchor tenants. So you'll see that it's been commented on pick and pay financial statements. It's been commented on Woolworth financial statements and cash bills because of what role they play as a tenant. So if you're an, so that's one of the reasons and why they're so significant. And so therefore, sure, sure. so therefore there, there, there's an element, um, although, that's part of the reason is also the fact that they weren't trading. There's a period of which they were not, there was no economic yes. trade. So that's also an impact on their, uh, on their results. But it just brings it all together. So when you then, um, what you would do is that, um, so if you look at where exactly um, the, the impact, the impact they say is between the pro forma increases between 10 to 15%. So what this should tell you is that they've actually done relatively well considering that they had a period of no trading. So if it's only going to be 10 to 15% um, the implementation, it's only going to be 10 to 15%. They've actually done relatively well. So they believe that if they, they earnings per share and, and, um, and uh, headline earnings that they are going to move between 36 and 41%. But if you consider, if you take out the effect of if it's, uh, 16, they only think 10 to 15%, meaning that they still haven't dipped as much or their profitability mm-hmm. hasn't dipped as much, which gives you an indication of... Um, uh, how well they've been trading. So if you, you you sometimes have to analyze companies. Unfortunately for Pick and Pay and Woolworths, which is why this hit them a lot harder, was that they had other structural issues. So even if you looked at cash flow um, uh, trading for today, they went up by 2%, which shows you the market rec- recognizes um, how they've been doing. But then again, mm-hmm. they still off, they still um, far below, far, far, far below um 52-week highs, 52-week highs, but that's a general sentiment and not necessarily within management control. Sure, sure, sure. Now, now, I mean, I guess, I guess the other dynamics, Nesiba, I want us to quickly touch on uh, is uh, about that buco transaction, and I guess uh, what that might mean for many who see the future growth of this p- potential uh, business here, and uh, I guess the the different customer classes that is going to be able to access uh, uh, cash build we know is a traditionally sort of more uh, uh, lower end of the uh, marketplace, the lower middle class segment. 
And uh, with the acquisition of Buco, I guess they're hoping to, to also tap into the higher end of the uh, income spectrum. Yeah, so that's like, yeah, that's what they want. That's a, you have to understand it. It's, it's, it's where the cash build, we know it as, yeah, as, you know, um, you know, the, the, the lower end of the sale. But yeah, them, it's 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 not, not, mm. yeah, our people, Shane, when you want to extend it back home, actually, that's your, that's where your people, that's where your people are. So I think this acquisition allows them to sort of, diversify and also there's uh, quite a few economics of scale um, that can be used because sure, ultimately sure. you buy from the same service provider you should share quite a significant mm. uh, supplier mm. base and the higher the higher LSM intends to be more resilient in tough economic times so I think that's sort of where um, I think that's sort of where the strategy is going for it makes sense but as you know, with acquisitions, they may look good on paper. I might be changing my mind three years from now. So, mm. but in on paper, this is what I think is the the, the logic, and so sure, sure. it makes complete sense from that perspective. Okay, Snesipo, before I let you go, what's happening in the DRC? It seems Glencore now is. Um hoping that uh, they, they can maybe try and formalize uh, some of the artisanal mining or what we would call zamazama uh, in the cobalt space. And uh, uh, certainly the one concentration where they get the overwhelming majority of the global supply of the stuff. Uh, uh, what's happening now? Okay. So, um, so, yeah. So, I'm going to say this quite simple. Many tools, dude. Hey, guys, that Tesla growth, that Tesla growth, have you been seeing the numbers on Tesla? Tesla. Even Glencore, Glencore, you know how shoddy Glencore, you know Glencore skirts over ethical mining, ethical, they skirt over it. It's literally their the, 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 the founding principle. So it's quite simple. They have two options here. They literally could actually, they could do number one, which is continue to the fight and then possibly lose out on customers, have um, um, have had issues in terms of have issues in terms of clients. And remember, a big thing which has come up is ESG. Ah, environmental, social, and governance considerations. Yes, the ethical, yeah? the mm. ethical, but the ethicalness of mining. Like I said, Glencore's skirts over ethical mining. They float over the concept, and and the trick he told is that here I was thinking all this ESG stuff is just a fad. I mean, capitalists will be capitalists. Sabandu just want money and raw accumulation. No, no, it's all fad. People just want to feel good about doing the bad thing. So put it this way: three quarters of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not lie to ourselves here. So three quarters of the world's cobalt comes from Congo, but Congo is one of the poorest regions. They also have diamonds and all other regions. And everything else. Mm. And everything else. Everything grows in Congo. Basically, everything grows in Congo. But yet they're one of the poorest. So the truth be told is that people want to at least pretend that some ethical is going on. But we can never, ever, ever, ever skirt away from the fact that ethical mining and the African continent are an abstract concept and doesn't even exist. Mm. So... Mm-mm. That's it. Drop the mic. Masishi up. Ethical conduct and extractive mining in Africa, not the same WhatsApp group. And go to Oh, boy.